And now, Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM proudly presents the 24th annual Martin Luther King Jr. Breakfast. We now take you live to the Einon Ballroom on the campus of Rowan University with WGLS-FM Assistant Station Manager Derek Jones and the host of the African-American Profile, Omari Williams. This is Omari Williams and Derek Jones here on the campus of Rowan University at the Ainan Ballroom. We're getting ready to uh, get started with the keynote speaker, which will be delivered by Mr. Harry Belafonte for the Dr. Martin Luther King Scholarship Breakfast that we have annually. And this is the 24th annual edition of it. And, uh, of course, the special speaker today will be Harry Belafonte here on hand to bestow well wishes and some inspiring words to all those here. And it's, it's great to have uh, Mr. Harry Belafonte, the consummate performer, um, here to get, deliver our keynote address. Uh, we have a packed house here at Roman University, and we're looking forward to a great speech. In fact, Harry Belafonte met Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. back in the early 50s, and he will, I'm sure, talk about his history with Dr. King and Dr. King's legacy and his message since his passing and so much to be thankful for in this special day. Thank you for joining us here on Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM Glassboro as we continue to go through the well wishes. What we are expecting here shortly is the introduction made by Mr. Bob Braun of the Rowan University Foundation, also the Senior Vice President of Nuclear Operations at PSEMG nuclear so he will be on hand shortly to introduce harry belafonte here to the crowd at Ainon ballroom and harry belafonte's life has been marked by activism and continuing the legacy that dr martin luther king um, had set out and you know you know for the equality of all people and supported dr king throughout many efforts um, through his marches through um support for different foundations that dr king was involved in so it's great to have harry belafonte here delivering this keynote address today Christy Faison at the podium and going through some of our special guests that are here on hand. This is a packed house and a packed room at Einon Ballroom. And at this time, let's go to the podium with Mr. Bob Braun. And as a courtesy to our keynote speaker, would you please refrain from taking pictures during the address? Thank you. Good morning. It is my profound honor today, as a representative of both PSEG and the Rowan University Foundation, to introduce our guest speaker. The accomplishments of Mr. Harry Belafonte are nothing short of awe-inspiring. One of the most successful entertainers of our time, Mr. Belafonte's work in the entertainment field earned him Emmy and Tony Awards, as well as a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. In 1989, he received the prestigious Kennedy Center honors. And in 1994, he accepted the coveted National Medal of Arts, the highest award given to artists and arts patrons by the United States government. However, Mr. Belafonte, who studied acting with Marlon Brando and Sidney Poitier, and performed with Charlie Parker and Miles Davis, never rested on his success as an entertainer. Indeed, from the early 1950s, when he first met the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to the present, Mr. Belafonte has used his voice to be a vigorous champion of human rights in the United States and around the world. 
A supporter and confidant of Dr. King's, Mr. Belafonte helped organize the August 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, where Dr. King delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech. During Fre Freedom Summer in 1964, he provided financial support to the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and supported voter registration drives. More recently, and on a global scale, Mr. Belafonte has worked to, to raise awareness of the plight of children and HIV AIDS victims in Africa and South Africa, including the republics of Kenya, Senegal, and Rwanda. His humanitarian work has earned him numerous honors, which are detailed in today's program. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in extending a warm Rowan University welcome to Mr. Harry Belafonte. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. This was a first for me. I have never been introduced by somebody who is deeply immersed in the work of nuclear resources. <laughs> have I got a lot to talk to you about? <laughs> Let me first of all welcome each and every one of you and to express my deep sense of personal satisfaction to be able to share this moment and this platform with you. I would like to thank that remarkable choir for the beautiful job it did this morning, those young people singing. Had I had them, If I had had them as my backup, I might have been successful. <laughs> I'd also like to thank the caterer in particular for, I mean, those grits. Did you get yourself a taste? <laughs> and last but not least, the president of this university. I congratulated him on his speech and its content subjects on which he touched. But then I told him that I expected nothing less from him because, after all, he is a Canadian. <laughs> Canada happens to be a country that means a great deal to me, not only because of the platform it gave me as I was building and growing as an artist, but the leadership that I met from, met from that great nation particularly Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, who was a good friend and a mighty warrior, looking at the world at large and thinking of how much good could he do. But also the fact that the Canadian people were most generous to us during the days of the Civil Rights Movement, the generosity that that community revealed when it gave us resources, money, when it housed our young, when it took young men and women from America who were caught in the abyss of shame and, and fear for the unjust war in which we were involved then, 
the way in which it treated our sons and daughters who, who escaped to Canada to uh, get away from the consequence of that illegal encounter. Canadians were most generous. And of course, uh, the fact that culturally and artistically, I should have said, shared so much with so many great Canadians. Coming here to do this is not an unusual task for me. Each time I am, however, uh, put up on with the same questions. What do I speak about today? What can I say about Dr. King that has not been heard? What can I say about what Dr. King thought and aspired to that is not already known? And while I hunt for conclusion to that query, I come to realize that, in fact, from the way in which we have conducted ourselves as a nation and as a people, there seems to be much that we have not heard. There seems to be much that we do not know because we have a propensity for continuing the same transgressions. We come each time on a new day with a new set of facades. We bring a new sense of moment by saying we no longer do this or we no longer do that, only to spend a moment relishing the fact that something may have been changed until you look more deeply and you realize that it has only been facaded. It has only been covered up. It has only been moved to a new level of engagement while so much in the human family is relegated to pain, anguish, and fear. America has a lot to be thankful for, but America has a lot that it is responsible for. We have the largest prison population in the world. Not the second, nor the third, not behind China or behind India, who are infinitely more populous than we are. We stand in the forefront of incarceration. And when you look at our prison systems, you will see that the majority of the citizens who make up the incarceration population are young men and women of color. And if you look hard at the economic environment from which these incarcerated have come, you'll find that a large, large majority are rooted in the business of poverty. This, then, was Dr. King's business. This was, in fact, what propelled him when he looked upon his community, his people, and his nation and saw these injustices and saw these transgressions and saw these problems at a very young age, 24 to be exact, 
he sought to wrestle with the problems of our time. And by the time he was 26, he was leading this nation, having been totally ill-prepared for that mandate. When first he called and we spoke, he was on the phone, and he said, uh, Mr. Belafonte, my name is Martin Luther King, Jr. I'm not sure that you know of me, but I'm from Montgomery, Alabama, and I'm calling you to solicit but a moment. I need to talk with you. And I told him that I knew who he was. We had been following the recent news and saw what was going on in Montgomery. He said, well, I'm coming to New York. I'll be speaking to the ecumenical community. And I'll be at uh, the Abyssinia Baptist Church. And after I've talked with the clergy, perhaps we could meet for just a few short moments at the church. And I said, I welcome the opportunity. Went, I heard him speak, and was absolutely fascinated and overwhelmed by what he had to say. We retired to the basement of the church for what should have been 30 or 40 minutes, I was told, and close to five hours later, we emerged from that meeting, me sitting in wonderment on who he was and how he could possess so much, with an understanding that he was on a mission for which he felt wholly inadequate. But he was on the mission nevertheless. And what he was seeking was to have alliances with men and women and institutions and people in the world, and particularly in America, to try to be able to galvanize some 20th century thought on how to end our inhumanity one to the other. I understood the enormity of the task. I even had a chance to glean a bit of uh, the problems that might accompany it. I was not, however, ready for what transpired. He was a great leader. What those of you in this room do not know is you do not know those moments when he wept, those moments when he sat staring in a distance, wondering why and how and when and where. He always doubted his capacity. He felt the calling, but he doubted his capacity. Consequently, he was always seeking from those whom he could trust some sense of whether he was on the right path or not. After all, his decisions were weighty. There was hardly an utterance or a cause that he anointed that did not carry with it some extreme consequence. On any given day, any member of his flock, any member of those of us who were in the movement could have been asked to go to our death many hundreds passed away during the course of that mission 
at, as of now, officially, more than 2,000 men and women who were missing during the civil rights movement have still not been accounted for. They're buried or tossed into some river or some shallow grave somewhere as the price they paid for their engagement in our struggle. Dr. King plagued over that. He sought out to find the mothers and the wives and the fathers and the sons and daughters to be able to bring a word of, count, of, of warmth and sorrow to those whom he had led to these places. Perhaps no greater struggle was his than when he had to make the decision to encourage young people in Birmingham, Alabama to become engaged in that great struggle, to use themselves as fodder for the bullets, for the hoses, for the dogs of the enemy. And as cameras from around the world caught those images, not only was Dr. King's choice in permitting the young to become engaged in their own destiny, but it proved to be strategically one of the best things that ever happened to America. It revealed us without compromise for who we were and what we had the propensity to do when we brought all that evil to the newspapers and to the television screens of the people in the world. That which people had accused black people of falsifying was now unequivocally true. People saw it. And we beat the game. We had achieved so much so swiftly that this young man who sat in doubt began to feel somewhat more comforted in the fact that he was on the right path. The last time I spoke with him was in 1968. He had just come back from Newark, New Jersey. We were holding a meeting in my home for the last session before moving into the beginnings of the Poor People's Campaign. Memphis was our first stop. The first image of that new onslaught was to be Dr. King in the midst of sanitation workers, mostly poor, mostly black workers, leading them for a better wage, leading them for a better station in life. And that would have been just the beginning of a long stream of events that would have taken place in this country, not the least of which was Tent City in Washington, D.C., where we were to be headquartered until the federal government paid full attention to the plight of the workers and the poor, and to the women, and to the young, and to peoples of color in this country. The nation was caught in this moment, and there were many who did not wish us well. Dr. King came back from Newark, and he presided over the meeting, but he seemed enormously preoccupied. And I asked him what troubled him. And he said, you know, Harry, we've come a long way. 
we have achieved much, yet there is so much more to achieve. And all that we've achieved up to now, I have come to believe that as hard as we fought for integration, to integrate this America, I'm afraid I am beginning to understand that we are integrating into a burning house. And the room fell silent. And after a moment, the question was asked, well, if that be your observation, if you feel this at this time in our movement, what would you have us do about this fact that we are integrating into a burning house? And he said, we're just going to have to become firemen. I did not understand the power of that metaphor, nor how, what sat in the depths of that prophecy until just recently, the end of the 20th century, when we saw an America that had not been known to us before, not quite in the dimensions in which we were seeing it. We were now in America, still with the largest prison population in the world. We were an America that had the capacity that all that we possessed to turn our back and to shamelessly deny the needs of suffering brothers and sisters in New Orleans and Katrina. We did that. We lied to the nation about an enemy that was in fact not an enemy, but in our lie we were able to provoke a war and lead us into this illegal abyss of mischief and cruelty. And this was coming from America. We are integrating into a burning house. Decisions were being made to incarcerate people without the right of trial, without the right of accusation without the right to stand before the courts. We were on a rampage of moral decay. And in this context, I understood what Dr. King meant. In this context, I also understood what he meant when he said, you're going to have to become firemen. I would love to be able to stand here and look at where we are, people and take great solace in the fact that we breathe, we laugh, we can talk, we can pass the time of day from time to time. But while we do all of these things that bring us pleasure, there sits this constant bubbling underbelly of pain and anguish, not just here in America, but in so many places in the world. We're looking at Haiti at this very moment, and the anguish that is faced by those Haitian people. Were I to tell you the truth about what goes on behind the scenes as we pour forth and feel proud as Americans that we are rushing to the cause of these people in need. Ah, but could you see the marketplace? Could you see the backbiting? the selfishness, the juggling for power, the, the, the way in which to shape new thoughts politically, 
as people still suffer waiting for deliverance. This is not false message. This is truth. We have been to Haiti thousands of times in its history. For over 200 years, that nation has been sitting in the womb of America. And in that time, we have watched it suffer from, from era to era to era. And our lending, our giving to the needs of the people in that region have always been so meager, so selfish, so contained. Yet we believe that we are a magnanimous people. And we have good reason to think that from time to time. But it's not across the boards. It's not across the boards. Ever since the Haitian people defeated the great Napoleon to become the first slave state to find freedom and to look for self-governance, it has paid a price for that transgression. No nation has ever given it relief for daring to violate the slave code. And until today, it still suffers that position of second-class citizenry. Dr. King went there with some regularity. He looked upon the Haitian people and spoke to their plight with great regularity. What do we do? What do we really do? Once we're no longer as distracted with our bank accounts, while we're no longer quite as distracted as we were about our hedonist capacity, what do we really do about who we are? What do we really do about what this nation can do? How do we bring a healing? How do we find the truth? One of my earliest mentors was a woman by the name of Ella Roosevelt. She called me one day to do a service for a group of young black students that she was working with. And she needed assistance. And she asked that I help her. And in that help, we came to know one another. Through her, I began to understand fully the articles of the Declaration of the Human Rights that governs our international body. That document, which is so often quoted, by which so much is measured, was an instrument, a big part of which was her doing. Through her, I saw the universe in its future. I saw what we would have to do in the application of human rights. She loved Dr. King, and when they met and they spoke, what passed between them that I was privileged to hear. What a sense of hope each brought to the other. And as they forged their way, we found more and more things to do. On occasion, Eleanor Roosevelt had taken to, to have a dinner with the President, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a man by the name of A. Philip Randolph. He was a great labor leader. He was a man of color. He led the sleeping car porters, the Brotherhood. And while at dinner with Roosevelt, Roosevelt petitioned him to speak to how he saw the Union, how he saw America. And a man noted for his articulation, his wisdom, his intelligence, spoke fluently 
and freely about how he saw America from the prism of a labor leader and as a person of color. And he admonished the president by saying, you have the bully pulpit. You have a platform from which to make a difference with one stroke of the pen. And you have been somewhat reluctant to do that. And at the end of this dinner, when Roosevelt responded, he said to A. Philip Randolph, I've heard everything that you have said, and there is nothing that I can disagree with. As a matter of fact, in most instances, you're right on the money. And you say that I have the power to make a change, and I accept that, because that is, in fact, the case. But there's one ingredient missing, and I would ask you to fill that space. And A. Philip Randolph said, what's missing? And Roosevelt said to him, you go out and make me do it. That was Dr. King's philosophy. We must go out and make that which must be done, done. We have come to accept disappointment among our leaders. We have sometimes even come to expect some hope from our leaders. We have come to expect good things from our church. But we've also come to find out that in many churches, the devil wears a blue dress. We have seen good in many places, only to know that its proximity, or within its proximity, lives great evil. How do we separate the wheat from the chaff? How do we find the deeper truth? We all sit and speak of Barack Obama, this black man who is now the president, and all sorts of levels that boggle the mind and the sensibilities for what we should be feeling as a race, as a people, as a culture, as a nation. And the truth of the matter is, we should take pride in the fact that America had an awakening, but for a moment and did see someone of color who brought salvation to the needs of the nation. But how quickly we've seen things begin to ripple in a different way. How quickly we have seen evil bubbling to the top, dissension among the leaders, the halls of Congress, all the things that go on. And we look at Barack Obama holding him responsible for all that will be, when in fact, he's really not that big a player. He is human. He is flawed. He's asked to lead something that's almost unleadable. <laughs> so while we're busy shunting the responsibility, <laughs> shunting the responsibilities of citizens what we should be doing by saying, watch him. He should this, he should that, he should the next thing. And I always turn mostly because I talk. I, I, I live in the prisons of America, incidentally. That's my work. I live in the prison population, from California to Attica to Sing Sing here, all over the world, talking with students, talking with people on the issue of violence. That's what my mission is 
is to find out how do we end violence? How do we bring mechanisms to work that can change the violent uh, canvas that we face each day? And I look at Barack Obama, and I remembered what uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt said to A. Philip Randolph. All right, brother, you fought for it, you got it. Here we come. We're not going to sit back. We'll watch you for the first few days because we just don't know what your body English is. Don't know quite how you handle the ball going down the center court. But you are flawed. After all, you are sending troops to Afghanistan. That was not what was in the scheme when you spoke acquiring or seeking to acquire the office of the presidency. You spoke a lot, not enough, about the poor. But so far, from what we've seen with the jingle, we've bailed out the banks, we've bailed out some housing, we've bailed out some insurance companies and whatnot. But I got to tell you, there are millions of poor people who cannot breathe, who have seen absolutely nothing. What are we waiting for? I say we're waiting for that Kingian moment. Because what Dr. King showed us was that there is a way to make this thing work. And the way to make this thing work is to make those who are comfortable with our oppression, those who are comfortable with our second-class citizenry, to not be so comfortable anymore. It's about time others began to feel some of this discomfort. There are too many who sit in, in, in dismissal of what's happening. There is an indifference here that cannot any longer be tolerated. There was once a Polish worker back in the early days of the growth of the Industrial Revolution. And when he was asked about what to do in, in helping to build this America, he says, we, we workers have got to realize and recognize one thing. And he said in the form of this poem, he says, calculate carefully and ponder it well and remember this when you do. My two hands are mine to sell. They made your machines and they can stop them too. I think the need for radical thought is in our midst. By radical thought, I don't mean some ideological mischief. I don't mean going off and trying to violently overthrow. What I am talking about is how to, in a deep, deep human way, put ourselves before the parades that go on in the universe of, of who we are and say, until the least of us have been satisfied with the true gift of life, then none of us shall be comfortable. Dr. King made it very uncomfortable in the streets of America. He made it very uncomfortable among institutions and among places. He made it uncomfortable for the clergy. Read letters from a Birmingham jail. Wherever he went, while he taught love and preached brotherhood, and sisterhood and humanhood, while he went out and embraced, he also made you understand that there was a price to be paid for indifference. 
And here's where I th think we are in need of him in this moment. None of us know where this is going. I've listened to the great bankers, the great social philosophers, and I listen constantly. I sit sometimes in the midst of them, hearing what they have to say. And up until this very moment, we have no solution. We are looking for a solution. And we, as citizens, as people, should not relegate that responsibility to finding solutions to those who have been elected to office. They are but a mere instrument of the things we must do. We must be vigilant. We must be on the case. We must be responsible for our communities, ourselves, our children, and not relegate that responsibility to some problem that we say we cannot fix. If there is a problem, we can fix it. The question is, do we want to fix it? The question is, are we too distracted with our hedonist pleasures? Do we have the time to fix it? Do we have the time to sit with our children and to tell them of the history they don't know? Do we have time to tell them what happened and what went on? Why do so many children today think the civil rights movement is irrelevant? When in fact the civil rights movement is the most relevant thing in their midst. Where have we failed in the task of passing this truth on to our youth? Where have we made them filled with intelligence and understanding for what preceded them and to know about what we have to go and do. What commitment are we prepared to make ourselves for getting into this fray and paying a price for trying to make a difference? Or is it just all too inconvenient? Does it just get in the way at the end of a long, tiring day? Do you just hope the kids will find another TV show to distract them for the rest of the night while you say nothing, while they look wonder about the world and all they know is what they see on television because we didn't speak to them. We never told them who Nelson Mandela was and is. I sat with Madiba just a few days ago and it was interesting to hear Morgan Freeman say this the other day. When I asked, I said, uh, 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 Madiba, what do you think about all this, the world and what's going on? And he paused for a long moment, and not just from age, he said, I wonder if we will be remembered. I wonder if we will be remembered. And I think America should ask itself the same question. I wonder if Dr. King will be remembered. I wonder if Bobby Kennedy will be remembered. I wonder if A. Philip Randolph will be remembered. I wonder if Harriet Tubman and Fannie Lou Hamer and Medgar Evers will be remembered. I wonder if the millions who fell on the battlefields of Europe will truly be remembered, or in Asia. I wonder if the young men and women who are dying in Iraq will be remembered. Where will we be when all this comes to the next moment? What will we remember of it?
and what will we be playing in the lives and we will be leading at the moment when that question will be asked. I thank Dr. King for having anointed me as a friend. I wish he were here, but I carry in my computer and on my being a collection of his speeches. And sometimes in the day when I come upon a moment that eludes me, I don't need to really hear the text again as much as I need to hear the voice. Because it says to me, it existed. He should and will be remembered. And it is my task to be one of those who will not forget and to carry forth his legacy. I don't know what you expected to hear today. I don't come with Socratean wisdom. I don't come with a, a, a litany of Shakespearean verses. I come only with an everyday knowledge that all is not well while I seek to find a way in which to make all well. And I seek out my fellow citizens, and that's why I'm here. When those who represent me say, how do you want to treat the king holiday? How do you want to treat that, that period? I always say to them, find out who's petitioning. And then the least of those that we know, let us accept them as the first choice. So it was a choice to be here today or at Harvard. I just said, well, what the hell? <laughs> Anybody can go to Harvard. <laughs> What's going on down there? What are them people saying? And it is in the places such as this. It's, uh, it's wherever people sit in a room and are willing to listen. It gives us the opportunity to say something changes all of this. And Barack Obama will fail or succeed on one fact and one fact only. And this is unequivocal. What did we make him do? Omari Williams and Derek Jones here, getting ready to close out the program here for the Martin Luther King Jr. Scholarship Breakfast. We just heard from um, Mr. Harry Belafonte and his keynote address. Yes, an inspiring address from Mr. Belafonte and a crowd-pleasing one. It got across a lot of interesting points, interesting messages about where we're headed as a country and where we have been as well. So. A very informative speech by Harry Belafonte. A great call to action as well, getting getting us to rally and and take up the mantle of improving our country instead of depending on our leaders solely and just getting them to do all the work. He wants us to pick up the effort and do it ourselves. And one thing he did make note of, which I found extremely intriguing, was he had a, ch a chance to choose today between Rowan and Harvard. Absolutely. And he chose Rowan. 
and uh, to speak to the people and actually get this message out to people who can use it and pick up the mantle and, and move on and be the change that they want to see in the world. That will do it for our coverage of the 24th annual Martin Luther King Jr. Breakfast. Thank you very much for joining us here today. For Omari Williams, I'm Derek Jones saying so long from Einon Ballroom here on the campus of Rowan University. Have a good day, everybody. You've been listening to exclusive coverage of the 24th annual Martin Luther King Jr. Breakfast only on Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM.